Morning, guys. Uh, a couple days ago on Wednesday, we celebrated Veterans Day, and it's a day that we just get to stop and think about how truly blessed we are to live in this country. We really have an incredible nation, just a freedom and opportunity. And you guys know just as well as I do that freedom isn't free and that it's because of the sacrifice, time, years, oftentimes even more than just time um, of soldiers, of people that serve our country. So today we want to honor, honor you. And if you are here today and you have either served or you are currently serving in the armed forces, would you stand and remain standing today so that we can applaud you? If you'd remain standing, um, thank you so much for your service. Uh, I served in the Air Force, and I saw firsthand that when you serve, uh, it, it is a full family commitment, isn't it? I mean, everybody in the family uh, is, is serving along with you, is making sacrifice along with you. So I wanted to ask today that if you are either the spouse or the kids of somebody who did serve or is serving in the military, would you also stand? so that we can appreciate your service and commitment. Thank you. If you are near one of these people, if you would just extend a hand towards them, we just want to pray a blessing over you guys, and thank you so much for making this nation what it is. Um, Jesus, you said that there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And today we pray for these men and women who have sacrificed their time, their strength, uh, years, even their lives on this earth to benefit others. Would you bless their families? We know that not everything that happens here in life is good, but you promise to work all things together for the good of those who love you. Create good in the families of these soldiers. We thank you as we thank them for their sacrifice we ask you just to give them the favor of your blessing, that you would give them a peace even beyond the peace that they fought for, a peace in their own hearts, and a life of abundant joy. In your name, amen. Thank you, guys. Memorize one of these faces. Thank them for their service afterwards. Um, said earlier, I'm student ministries pastor, and so junior high and high school is what I deal with. I say everything from first jobs to fart jokes. That's pretty much my life. Um, <laughs> If you've never dealt with junior hires, you need to. They say some things, boy. Those guys are crazy. They will say anything. You want some tweetable phrases? Serve in the junior high. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I asked them a question. I said, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? And as they began to answer, I thought to myself, wow, I need to write these down so I can make fun of them later. So I did. <laughs> and here they are. Not kidding. These are the <laughs> answers that I get. If you have any superpower, what would it be? Here's the first answer. Shape-shifting, in case we're playing hide-and-seek, I could shape-shift into a pigeon and fly away. <laughs> Way to think big picture. <laughs> answer number two. I would read minds, because then I could tell when somebody says they want McDonald's that they actually want a chicken bowl. Limitless supernatural power, <laughs> world-changing potential, 
and we use it to call somebody out on their dinner choice. That's great. <laughs> last one's the one I want to talk about a little bit. Um, last answer was, uh, if you could choose any superpower, what would it be? And they said, um, I would have the power to have everybody like me. Not everybody be like me, to have everybody like me. And at first, I was like, oh, that's kind of petty. And then I thought, man, like, how much time in a given day or in a given week do we spend trying to get other people to like us? Right? Trying to um, make ourselves valuable to somebody else. Trying to earn or to prove our worth to somebody else. Really, think about how much time. Things you wear, the way you introduce yourself. Um, your pedigree. I mean, everything you do is, is inspired by this desire to be valued, to be liked, to be known. If you're anything like me, I've got these different spheres of, of friends or areas of my life. I've got my sports world, like my volleyball friends, got my church friends, got my work friends, got my you know, community where I live, those friends. And every single area has this subconscious, like one through 10 rank scale, you know? And you know kind of where you stand in these rank scales. You know that there are people in those that are worse than you are, or those that are better. You actually know the system so well that you know how to fake like you're level eight when you're really a level six. And it's not something that, oh, you know, I struggled with last Tuesday. It is an all-consuming thing. It, it monopolizes our focus. It's all we think about is how we can increase our stature inside of these different levels. How do we earn more worth? How do we earn more value? And it's so consuming that without even realizing that we have constructed this prison around ourselves, our entire life is spent inside of this comparison trap, this prison of assigning value or worth determining what your worth is. This prison that we live in made me think of a uh, scene from a movie. If you've ever seen the movie Shawshank Redemption, there's a scene where there's a prisoner named Brooks, and Brooks has been in prison pretty much his whole life, right? And he finally learns that he's going to be released. He's going to be set free. And upon hearing this, he does something drastic and crazy so that he'll stay in prison. There's a scene where the rest of the prisoners are dissecting, talking about the mentality of Brooks, why he would do that. Take a look. Get off. Brooks ain't no bug. It's just, just institutionalized. The man's been in here 50 years, Haywood. 50 years. This is all he knows. In here, he's an important man. He's an educated man. Outside is nothing. Just a used-up car and box riders in both hands. Probably couldn't get a library card if he tried. You know what I'm trying to say? But I'm telling you, these walls are funny. Right, you hate them, and you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. That's So these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. I work with junior hires every week, and junior hires hate them. 
There's this constant war inside of themselves, this constant battle of freedom, of being who God has created them to be. And on the other side, it's the introduction of others' perceptions. And there's this battle, and they hate it. They hate the walls. They hate being judged. Then you get used to them. I work with high schoolers in college age every week, and you start to get used to the fact that there's a system in the world. You start to just acknowledge that this is the way things go. As a matter of fact, I deal with seniors, high school seniors, who are making transitional, pivotal life decisions right now based on where they're going to rank in the system in another five or ten years. Decisions now depend on where I'm going to be on this scale. You get used to them. If time passes, you get so you depend on them. 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Sometimes there is no scarier thought than freedom. This is the system we know. I need structure. I need a scale. I need a system so that I can know when I'm valuable, so that I can know when I'm better than somebody else. Full disclosure, I need volleyball players that are worse than I am so I can feel better about myself, right? (laughs) I need husbands and fathers who have done worse things than I have so that I can feel better about myself. We know where we are on the scale. We depend on the value that we get from the scale. And if somebody took it away, we'd have no idea what to do. And as a matter of fact, the system is so inundated in who we are that what we picture this Christian life or this life following Jesus as, God offers a life of freedom. Caleb up here every week talks about a life of freedom. And our idea of a life of freedom is very simply taking this prison that we've built around ourselves, uprooting it, Moving over to the Christian life, adding some Bible words, and that's it. We think thoughts like, God can't use me because I'm just a level two. God doesn't even talk to you to your level five. Change the city, that's like level eight and above. I've actually talked to people who said, I've been in this life for 35 years. I have clout over here. I've made dramatic decisions to get my reputation to where it is. If I'm going to start this, this Christian life, I'm going to ground zero. Now I'm in competition with that homeschool kid that's been memorizing Bible verses since he was three, right? (laughs) That's who God uses, not me. I have no idea what I'm doing over there. We're inundated in the system. We're held prison, held prisoned by the system. We've been working our way through Romans And what I love about Romans, Romans is a fierce book. I mean, it's fierce. It's beautiful, and it's kind, but it is fierce. And the reason it's fierce is because we are so consumed with this mentality, so consumed with this way of life, that it has to grab us and shake us like crazy and say, this is not the life that God has intended. You want to talk about fulfilled life? Does that feel fulfilled? You are prison. You are imprisoned to the system. And I feel that a lot of us moving through Romans have gotten to a point where we say, I like the idea of this life of freedom. It scares the heck out of me, but I like the idea of no longer having to be held to this standard. And your feet are kind of on the precipice of this decision, and you're ready to make that decision, but there are just a couple questions that you have today. Hopefully, we're going to address a couple questions that may just be the nudge you need to launch into this new life of freedom. 
Paul's going to address three very fundamental questions, and it'll give us the confidence to begin this life following Jesus. We're continuing today in Romans 8. If you have your Bibles, uh, flip open to verse 31. We'll have it up on the screen also. Here's the first question we're going to answer. Will enemies, opposition, and challenges ruin my life? It's fair. Will enemies, opposition, and challenges ruin my life, right? I know my opposition and challenges over here. I don't know it for that new life. Is that going to ruin my life? Now, this verse is coming off what we talked about last week, the um, God working all things to the good of those who love him. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Say this after me. God is for me. Say it again. God is for me. Do you believe that? believe that God is for you? That God is not against you? That God is not looking to punish you? We think the enemy's opposition and challenges will ruin my life, but here's the truth. The only power, the only threat that opposition has against you, the only thing is that it can challenge your value. That's the only thing that opposition can do. Opposition is everything from our enemy from Satan to this broken world. The only thing that our opposition can do is challenge your value. And so when your value and your identity are no longer in question, the opposition has no power over you. It's solidified. They can try their best, but it's water off the back. That's all they have is to challenge something. So when you know who you are, when you walk in what God has created you to be, your opposition has no power. Will enemies' opposition challenges rule my life? No, because they have no power when your identity is solidified. Next question. Will I have what I need? I don't know that life. Will I have what I need when I get there? Here's another question. What is it you think you need? What is it you think you need to live a fulfilled life? What is it you think you need to live a life of impact? Continuing in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? When God sent his son, Jesus, to earth, it says that Jesus was born and he was fully God and fully man, and Jesus knew when he came here that he was going to die for us, that he was going to raise from the dead three days later. And why did that happen? Why did Jesus come to die for us? He came to save us from the one through 10 scale. He came to say, I want you to be defined no longer by what you do, but by what I've done on the cross. I am now your definition. My grace and love is how you are now defined. That's what's available. A couple years ago, Kristen and I went on a uh, marriage retreat, and it was awesome, by the way. Uh, strongly recommend it, just helped our communication so much. Doesn't matter. But uh, we went to this third-party house, and there was a hosting family. And the hosting family, the entire week, they did everything for us. They cooked our meals. Uh, they did our laundry. They, if we needed a drink refill when we're hanging out, they get a drink refill. They put on my deodorant. Like, they, they didn't do that. 
But they did everything for us. And I remember thinking, half, I was like, this is a little awkward. Like, I'm a grown man. I can get a drink refill, you know? And so I started to think, why would they do this? Why? What, like, what's the point of this? And I realized that if this is a marriage retreat, my focus on this retreat is my bride. My focus is my relationship with Kristen. If I'm having to wonder what things I'm responsible for and what I'm not, it's taking focus away from Kristen, right? If I'm saying, oh, is this too small of a thing? Oh, this is dumb. Yeah, like, don't call him for this. Oh, that's too big. All of that energy, when they say we take care of everything, that means all of that is off the table. You don't worry about any of that. You're not responsible for any of that, and you can fully focus on your relationship with Kristen. This life is a marriage retreat. We are not home. We are not home. One day we will have a homecoming and we will be face to face with our loving Father. And we have the opportunity now in this life to begin that relationship with our Father. And when Jesus comes to earth to die for us, he says, you no longer have to be worried about anything you are not responsible from the smallest to the biggest. I'm paying for all of it because I want your focus to be completely on your relationship with our Father. Will we have what we need? Absolutely. Because when Jesus died, he solidified our identity. He says, I am now who defines you, not what you do. Last question. Will my failures ruin everything? Everybody's had that question, huh? Well, my failures ruin everything. I don't know how that works. Like, if I'm doing a life with Christ, buddy, you didn't see me last week. Like, I got the potential to, like, undo the Bible. I'm telling you, you know? Well, my failures ruin everything here. Continuing in verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. When Jesus dies, it says that Jesus dies for us, and again, he takes it off the table. Now you say, well, my failures ruin everything. Look at the inverse of that question. The inverse of that question, if you believe that your failures can ruin everything, it also means that you believe you can be good enough to fix everything. I don't know if you saw this or not, but I think it was like a month ago. There's a five-year-old boy. His name was JP, beautiful five-year-old boy, diagnosed with cancer. And JP's wish, his dream, was to play in the NBA. So the Utah Jazz catch wind of this, and they actually, unprecedented, they set him up and they sign him for a one-day contract with the Utah Jazz. Isn't that cool? I mean, like, legit paperwork, and they give him a jersey. Everything is legit. And he shows up to the game. The other team there is in on it. And he sits there, and they're actually going to get him in the game for a play. Pretty awesome. What if, when the coach calls JP's name and says, JP, you're in, what if JP goes, hey, coach, call timeout? Coach is like, what? Call timeout. He's like, all right, timeout. And JP's like, coach, I just want to prove to you that I earned this contract, all right? <laughs> Give me that ball. I'm going to make a couple free throws, a couple layups. Just want to show you guys I deserve to be here. The coach is like, what are you talking about? You're five years old. You could never earn this contract. You could never deserve to be here. As a matter of fact, by you suggesting that you could, it diminishes this gift of love. 
we have the opportunity every single day to love people. We have the opportunity every single day to show kindness to the people around us, to impact our families, to impact our communities, to change our city. And friends, we know more deserve to be a part of that than that five-year-old deserves the MBA contract. We have the opportunities that we do because God's grace is what showers us, because God's love showers us. You know the only qualifying thing to be used by God, the only thing that's necessary is to be loved by God. That's it. And here's what Paul says about that, continuing on. Verse 35 and then 38 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know this sounds like a go get em verse, but it's actually just a very heartfelt explanation of how much God loves us. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Right? No drinking problem. No broken marriage. No laziness. No opposition. No history of prostitution. Nothing can separate you from the love of our Father. He is crazy about you. He has the hairs on your head numbered. He has good plans for you. He designed you. He desires to know you. You know when we know that we truly get this, when this is something that we really get, you know that you get it when your life looks different. Right? You know you fully understand this when you view every situation through this response to God's goodness. Because there is only one thing in this world that can sustain your heart. We live in a, a pretty, pretty rough world, don't we? I mean, there is sadness in this world. Look at the situation with Paris. There is sadness in this world. There is heartbreak in this city. Love of God can't be a concept can't be something that you just hear, can't just be a song that you sing to your son every night. The love of God has to be something that you metabolize. When you metabolize something, when you eat, the process of metabolism takes food and it, it makes it your energy. It becomes a part of who you are. When we metabolize God's love, it forces us to response. Our life looks different. Here's an example of how that looks. One of my favorite stories in scripture um, I'm just going to paraphrase it so you can write it down and go check it out later if you want. 2 Kings chapter 7. The story zeroes in on the city of Samaria. It's in Israel. And so Samaria is God's people here in the city. And Samaria is actually under attack from a foreign army, from the Syrian army. And instead of attacking the city, the army of Syria surrounds Samaria and is going to starve them out. Right? So they set up camp, and as far as the eye can see, there are tents. As far as the eye can see, there are soldiers. And then here in the middle, you have Samaria. And nothing goes in, nothing comes out. It's like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. <laughs> Just not as fun. As a matter of fact, the Bible outlines the starvation there. And it gets so bad that the head of a donkey is sold for food and sold for what would be like $1,000 nowadays. 
Even worse, the Bible says that the city is starving and resorts to cannibalism. It's an incredibly sad scene. And there's a prophet in that time. A prophet is somebody who hears from God and then gives God's word to his people. That's what happened back then in the Old Testament. So there's a prophet named Elisha, and God speaks to Elisha and says, I have a word for the chief official. So Elisha goes to the chief official and says, hey, just to let you know, God spoke and he said, in one day's time, everything will be restored. In one day, everything will be made right. Financially, Food will have all that we need. And the chief official is like, you're a loon. There's no way that's going to happen. And Elisha says, it will, and you're not going to be alive to see it. The guy's like, whoops. <laughs> Bit the tongue on that one. The story then pans over. It moves to another group outside of the city walls. There are four lepers, four guys plagued with leprosy. And though in that time, the way that lepers got their food was they relied on the generosity of other people in the city. Right? They, they were beggars. They had to have food given to them. You better believe there's not a ton of generosity in a city that's eating donkey brains, right? So these guys are starving, and they're out there, and they're saying to themselves, look, we're dead. Like, we got that right. Like, we're dying. If we're going to die, let's go out with a bang. So their idea is to go to the Syrian army, beg for mercy, beg for food. Who knows? Maybe they'll give it to them. And if they kill them, they were going to die anyway. So let's just go for it. So they start to make their way to the Syrian army. At the same time, God does a miracle. God makes something so incredibly supernatural. He makes it so every member of the Syrian army hears these sounds that aren't there. They hear sounds of, of horses. They hear sounds of shouting, of soldiers, of trumpets. And they're so convinced that they're surrounded by another army that they tuck tail, they leave everything there, and they run away for their lives. They leave their tents, leave their food. Everything is gone, right? And they just bail for the hills. Now you got these four lepers who are like nervous, you know, going up to the camp, like, what are we going to say when we get there? Check your breath, dude. <gasps> Good, okay, let's go. <laughs> right, they get there, and nobody's there. I'm sure there's still smoke off of this fire. They look in the first tent, nobody's there. Second tent, nobody's there. One of them like slowly grabs a turkey leg. <laughs> <laughs> they get this gold, they get some of the riches, they go off, they bury it, come back, get some more, bury it, and then they eat until they're pretty much sick. They're sitting there and they say to each other, this isn't right. This isn't right. There is more here than we could ever experience. And we have a city that is starving to death. So actually these four lepers run back to the city and they say, look, come, see what we found. See all this goodness that we've discovered. And homeboy, the chief official, uh, goes, don't go, it's a trap by the Syrians. And the whole city's like, don't care. And they storm the gates and they trample them to death. <laughs> they go out, they take everything from the tents, and in one day's time, the city's restored to what it was. Everything is made right. Some people in here today, maybe this is your first time to church, maybe God is just a word to you and you're just here checking things out. I want to let you know that God's goodness is for you. That God knows how tired you are in the system. He wants to offer you his love and his grace 
He wants to offer you an identity and a value that doesn't change. There are other people in here who just like the leper. You guys are thinking to yourself, if I stay here for one more second, I'm going to die. Whether it's hopelessness, whether it's fatigue, you're saying, I got to do something. I got to move. I would urge you today, in response, not of obligation or shame or guilt, in a response to God's goodness, to take a step today. Your toes are there on the edge. To take a step away from that system, away from that scale, and into this incredible life that God has planned for you. To take a step into his love. It is a radical, radical love of our Father. Even more than that, guys, look at the four people that God used to change that city. Four lepers. Four, four people who have been discarded by the city. Who do you think God is going to use to save this city? It's not Christian level aiders. He uses us. He uses broken beggars with no street cred, right? That simply say, come, see the source of goodness. Come, experience the love of a father. Come see what I found. I was lost and now I'm found. I was in prison and now I'm free. And now I am defined by God's grace, by what Jesus did for me. Would you bow your head and pray with me? Lord, even preparing this message, I realize how quickly I resort to this system. I, uh, it's my default. Lord, you offer a freedom and a goodness and an excitement and a fulfillment that is so far from the scale that the world implements. Today, I want to just take a step, a step toward the life of freedom, a step away from what I knew and say, God, whatever you have for me, I trust you more than I trust myself. I trust that your goodness is greater than anything I could ever screw up. Lord, would you use me in this city to lead other people to your goodness? No, I don't deserve it. No, I can't earn it. But it's such an incredible opportunity that you give us to be used by you just because you have grace on us. We trust the plans that you have for us this week and how you're going to use us to draw other people to your goodness. In your name, amen.